This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Human Circus. Not all voyages reach their destination. Some sink below the surface, either figuratively or literally, and never reach their goal. Travelers are lost in the desert and become bones for those who come after to comment on. They board the ship that never shows up in port, or they're cut down by bandits in the mountains. They freeze and are forgotten. For others, it's more that their intended destination itself doesn't quite reach the fullest extent of their story. A promise is not kept, maybe or their expectations are not met. And instead of returning and perhaps leaving us no kind of a story at all, they carry on. This is that kind of story. Its protagonist appears not to have wanted to be the main character. And that goes beyond the kind of posturing that can appear in this kind of thing. The, your humble chronicler, or I who am not worthy. There's a deeper antipathy to travel here. He actually expresses a desire to do away with it entirely at one point. He bemoans his fate at being so far from home, and mutters grimly of certain enemies who'd arranged for him to be selected for the journey. And he does not go where he'd initially planned. Or rather, he doesn't stop there. He does not like his intended destination does not find it suits him, and does not find the diplomatic gains to be forthcoming. But then, a vision and an invitation unlooked for send his embassy in a new direction, take him to an even more unfamiliar location. The possibilities open up for our traveler, and we, the This Podcast We, journey somewhere that we haven't really spent time yet. It's the mid-15th century, and we are headed for the interior of India. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that covers medieval history through the stories of its travelers. And the podcast has a Patreon, one with early, ad-free, and extra listening on a what-works-for-you basis for $1 a month or 3 or five. Whatever works for you. It's all incredibly helpful. And on that note, I want to send out a thank you to the newest Patreon supporter of the podcast. Tom, thank you very much. And now, back to the story. It's the story of a deeply unenthused ambassador who'd set out for one destination, come away unimpressed, and would be whisked off to quite another there to witness great things, great beauty, great violence, 
But ultimately, to come away with his position there, perhaps even his very identity, in some doubt. Today, we're jumping on from the Clavijo Timor storyline that we followed through the last series. And if you haven't listened to that yet, it's not strictly necessary to have done so before getting into this one, though there are connections. Today, it's a diplomatic trip from the Timurid center of power. But that would not be from Timur's Samarkand. Not from Samarkand at all. But from Herat. From Shah Rukh's Herat. You might remember from that last series that Clavijo received an invitation to visit Shah Rukh there when he was still on his way to Timur. Shah Rukh was Timur's son. The one who had managed, after Timur's death and some very unsteady years, to seize control of a substantial portion of his late father's empire. And despite the violent instability that had led into his reign, to successfully hold on to it for some four decades. Our story is set quite late in those decades. The story today comes to us as a section within a book of much broader scope, called The Rising of the Auspicious Twin Stars and the Confluence of the Oceans, a history of the Timurid family. That section which concerns us takes us to events late in Shah Rukh's reign, to the year 1242, and to its author setting out for India. That author's name was Abd al-Razak Samarkandi. Abd al-Razak had been born late in 1413, too late to have been around for the rule of Timur himself, and by the time of his departure was in his late twenties. He'd been born in Herat, the son of an important man, a Qadi, or judge. As these things do tend to go, he would also be an important man. He was leaving for the city of Spices, Calicut, or Korikod, on the Malabar coast of the Indian state of Kerala, a point of access to the pepper-growing lands of the interior, and a key port for long-distance maritime trade, at which Muslim merchants found particular success. In the previous century, it had been described by Ibn Battuta as one of the world's greatest ports, visited by merchants from as far away as Arabia in one direction and China in the other, with 13 large Chinese ships in port when he was there. Had been described by Chinese traveler Wang Dewan as the most important port for all of the foreigners in the Western Ocean. That was where Abd al-Razak was going sent there because of an invitation, and because of an earlier diplomatic mission. By his own account, Shah Rukh's representatives had been visiting the Sultanate of Bengal, and on their return trip, had stopped in at Calicut, where they'd met with its ruler. The Samudiri, for so he was known, had been impressed with their glowing description of Shah Rukh and his power, impressed enough to send envoys of his own to the Timurid ruler. The Muslim ambassador who then visited Shah Rukh in Herat told him that the Friday sermon in Calicut, the Kutbah, could, if he wished, be recited in his name, 
He told him that the Samudiri himself might even be convinced to convert to Islam. It was in response to this invitation, this promise, that Shah Rukh dispatched Abdel Razak with gifts of horses, robes, cloaks, and headwear. And Abdel Razak was not exactly pleased with his selection. He was neither happy at the opportunity nor honored to be chosen. He complained in writing that his enemies had arranged it, rubbing their hands at the thought of his being lost at sea on such a long voyage. No matter how displeased he may have been, Abdel Razak departed on the 13th of January, 1442. There were ruined buildings in the desert as they traveled, a city of which the wall and four bazaars could still be distinguished, though there was no sign that people might use it. They were headed first for Hormuz. Hormuz could be found at the Strait of Hormuz, where the Persian Gulf met that of Oman. Still can be. Our traveler reported that it brought merchants from Egypt, Syria, Arabia, and Anatolia, from Iran, Khorasan, and Turkestan, from the ports of China, India, and Java, and on all the product that flowed from these far-flung locations, all of that which, quote, the sun, the moon, and the rains have combined to bring to perfection, save for silver and gold. A tenth of the value was paid. It was much easier, if you were lucky enough to be lord of such a place, to let the goods of the world come past your doorstep and take a little off the top on the way than it was to go out there and get them. To this end, the city was well maintained and no injustice allowed, regardless of one's religion. I mean, I'm sure there was indeed at least some injustice, but still, the city was known as Dar al-Aman, the abode of peace. And in Hormuz, Abdel Razak found a friendly welcome, a house for his needs, and everything he could ask for. But however welcome he felt when he first arrived, Abdel Razak would soon find reason to lose that happy glow. And by soon, I mean over the two months that followed, as the city's governors found one reason after another to keep him there, allowing the time when it was best to travel in the early or middle period of the monsoon season, to pass, and only letting him go when that season was reaching its end, and the risk of piracy was at its worst. It's not clear from the text exactly why he was restrained there in the city so long. Maybe it actually was his fault, and he was here playing the grumbling out-of-towner, confused and annoyed by the unfamiliar boxes he was being called upon to tick. Maybe it wasn't. When you see his first reaction to taking to sea, you start to wonder if it wasn't a case of self-sabotage on his part, if he hadn't maybe been dragging his feet and hadn't actually been all that keen to go to sea at all. He wrote that the events, the perils which accompany a voyage by sea, present the most marked indication of the divine omnipotence, the grandest evidence of a wisdom which is sublime that the execution of so important an undertaking cannot be either accomplished or related, but by the help of that living and powerful being who makes easy that which is most difficult. But it does not appear that God chose to make it easy for our traveler, 
Indeed, there seems more in his experience that is horror at the irresistible power of the elements than there is appreciation for sublime wisdom. When the smell of the ship first hit his nostrils, he would write that, quote, All the terrors of the sea presented themselves before me. I fell into so deep a swoon that for three days respiration alone indicated that life remained within me. For what it's worth, he was not alone in this panic. By the time he struggled back to consciousness, with the ship then underway, many of the merchants aboard were in an uproar, crying out that the time for navigation was past, and that everyone who put to sea at this time was alone responsible for his death, since he voluntarily placed himself in peril. Many took the financial loss of having already paid for their passage, but disembarking at Muscat. They weren't even clear of the Gulf of Oman, but they were at least alive, while some who had left Hormuz on a separate ship might not have been, for our traveler would later try and fail to find out what had become of them. And another ship, whose passengers he'd catch up with later in Calicut, would be plundered at sea by pirates, those aboard lucky to escape with their lives. As for Abd al-Razak, he survived. He and the rest of his embassy made it a little further down the coast of Oman, but not so very far, just to Koryat, where the mood was grim. It seems not to have been uncommon for merchants who worked the waters of this coast to be forced by adverse weather to abandon their plans. There was even a word for such a failed voyage. But Abd al-Razak writes in very dramatic tones of how it affected him. Quote, in consequence of the severity of pitiless weather and the adverse manifestations of a treacherous fate, my heart was crushed like glass, and my soul became weary of life. My season of relaxation became excessively trying for me. At the moment, when through the effects of so many vicissitudes, the mirror of my understanding had become covered with rust, and the hurricane of so many painful circumstances had extinguished the lamp of my mind, so that I might say I had fallen into a condition of apathetic stupidity. Adding to the ambassador's misery was a mention of home that made it all that much worse. One evening, he met a merchant who had recently arrived from India. And where was he going? Abdel Razak asked him. My only object, the man replied, is to reach the city of Herat. The name of his home city was like the striking open of an already leaking wound. It threw Abdel Razak into distraction and brought to mind a poem. Quote, When I begin to weep, at the time of the traveler's evening prayer, I relate my tale with the cries and wails of the stranger. Recalling friend and home, I cry so hard that I would root out the custom of travel from the world. I am from the land of the beloved, not of the rival. O guards, take me back to the companionship of my friends. It's quite a moving reminder, I think that these travelers were not on vacation. They did not necessarily choose this. He certainly didn't. 
there could be no easy communications home. They had, in effect, been banished, some for years, with no idea if they would return, or who among their friends or family would still be there alive if they did. You can see how someone like Abd al-Razak might consider himself to be cursed by such a burden, why he'd weep through the traveler's evening prayer. The way ahead would offer little by way of immediate relief. It was May, but the heat put him in mind of the fires of hell. Hot enough that it burned the ruby in the mine and the marrow in the bones. The sword in its scabbard melted like wax, and the gems which adorned the handle of the dagger were reduced to coal. There's some lines of poetry at this point about roasted gazelles in the desert, and how the fish in their ponds burnt like silk in the flame. How both water and air were hot enough that the fish sought relief in the fire itself. Clearly, there was some exaggeration at work here, but equally clearly, the heat was starting to tell, and Abdal Razak and the other members of the embassy were sick, feverish, fatigued, and weakened over a span of four months. The embassy heard word of a place nearby with a more salubrious climate and cooling waters, and arranged to be taken there. But the sickness was, in Abdal Razak's depiction, horrible. He was feeble, powerless to utter a word during the day, and then eyes wide open all night, soul on the point of quitting the asylum of his body. For one member of the party, it went past that point. Of his own elder brother, Abdal Razak said that he obeyed that maxim, that man knows not in what country he must die, and also the other, that wherever you may be, death shall reach you. He thought then of the words of a pre-Islamic Arabic poet, that, quote, eventually, one is abandoned by one's brother, by the life of one's father, by all except the twin stars. Worn down by grief and sickness, describing himself as detached from life, Abdel Razak was carried aboard a ship bound for India to try again to reach his destination. And with that, we will take a quick break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For Abdal Razak, the second try at the crossing went better than the first. 
Maybe it helped that he felt plucked from the brink of death by the soothing ocean air. I'm sure it helped that a favorable breeze pushed them forward, that no pirates troubled their voyage, that after all their previous difficulties, their waiting and sickness, this time they reached their destination in 18 days. They were in Calicut. In the text, this comes as something of a surprise in its suddenness. These things are never exactly paced like novels, but after the nearness of death and despair just sentences before, after the talk of merchants opting not to follow through on a passage they had already paid for, they arrived. In one edition, this lurch in circumstances is actually worsened by a somewhat cavalier note from the translator that he ought to have included a lengthy description of the vessel, but hadn't. Elsewhere, you can read Abdel Razak's comparisons of the ship, borrowed from another poet. It is a girl whose language is soft and sweet, an overawing cloud like a seabird in flight, its mast firm and stable as the pole star. On this ship, they had arrived at Calicut, a thriving port in the southwest of India, frequented by an ocean of travelers. Abdel Razak describes it as a perfectly secure harbor, and its success, the sheer level of activity, seemed to bear this out. But, as Sebastian Prange points out in his book Monsoon Islam, it actually lacked a natural harbor, and lighterage was needed, the transfer of goods by barge. Ibn Battuta's own possessions had been lost when the ship bringing them in had been smashed on the shore. But despite such possibilities, the port rose from obscurity to renown, a rise that has often been credited to the traffic of Muslim traders. But quoting Krishna Iyer, the rapid rise of Calicut was due not so much to its geographical advantages, nor even to the coming of the Muslims and the Chinese, as to the policy of the rulers which induced them to flock to this port in such large numbers. As Prange continues, the key to Calicut's success can be found in policies by which its rulers sought to address a basic problem facing maritime merchants. Trust. To a greedy ruler, or perhaps just a very immediately needy ruler, the wealth of merchants passing through their port could be a real temptation. Cargo and coin there to be had, within their control, their grasp if only they were just to take it. And there were stories of those who did. Avaricious princes and the like, who made this or that port one to be avoided, if you could help it. But not Calicut. Calicut was a place you could depend on. You could trust that you were going to leave with your possessions intact, and that, as a Muslim, you were going to be able to do business without being troubled for your religion. And you find both these elements of trust talked about in the sources. They're mentioned in this one, with the acknowledgement that no matter what your vessel, or who you were, you would get the same treatment. Duties were low, lower than Hormuz, and only applied to sales, not simply goods passing through the port. Moreover, goods were not stolen, neither by thieves on the street, nor by the port authorities themselves. You could depend on that, 
and that was worth a great deal. So that was where Abdel Razak was, with the rest of the Timurid embassy, in that most dependable of towns. A kind of merchant's paradise, but not in all ways ideal for him. He'd never wanted to be part of this embassy, had lost his brother and suffered sickness. He was clearly thrown off balance by this moment, this place into which he had been flung. There were many Muslims there in Calicut, but this city, unlike Hormuz, was not within the sphere of Islam. Maybe that informed his reaction. Abdel Razak starts into the city with a little verse on its strangeness, on extraordinary beings who are neither men nor devils. Not the ideal way to refer to local inhabitants of a city you're visiting. He describes the people he saw, dressed only between the knee and navel, and contrasts them unfavorably with the city's Muslims, resplendent in clothes more to his liking and manifesting luxury in every particular. Our author made some passing observations as to the caste system, noting the existence of difference within it, but seeing all practicing that same polytheism. He saw the ships leaving, their cargo mostly pepper. He said that you could have anything you wanted in that port, save for cow meat. Overall, despite his acknowledgement of the city's good situation when it came to maritime trade, the ambassador does not seem to have been impressed. He did not enjoy his time there, and part of that disappointment may have been caused by his audience with the Samudiri. It was not that he was kept waiting. It appears he had only to linger three days in admittedly comfortable lodgings before being brought in. However, when he got there, Abdel Razak saw a man among the few thousand in the hall who seemed to him naked as other men he'd seen there, or near enough. And just as Abdel Razak was distinctly underwhelmed by this ruler, the ruler seems to have thought very little of him. The gifts Abdel Razak had brought were paraded before the throne, but the Samudiri seemed to have little regard either for them or the man who had brought them. All that talk of prayer in Shahrukh's name, or even possibly conversion, seemed now very far away. Maybe they'd never really been on the table. Maybe the gifts themselves failed to live up to expectations, and did not exactly speak to this man of a great and powerful lord in distant Herat. Maybe the circumstances had changed. With neither party particularly moved by what they'd seen, the audience ended, and Abdal Razak returned to his lodgings. And that's pretty much what we see of his interactions with the Samudiri. We don't get a series of follow-up visits that build until the two of them really get to know each other and come to earn one another's respect. Instead, we get Abdal Razak's complaints. It was like that period in the heat of Koryat again, except that he wasn't sick. He was just stricken, stuck there, and hating it. From early November 1442 until mid-April 1443, he waited, quote, in this disagreeable place where everything became a source of trouble and weariness. 
and it's hard to say exactly how to read this. Was he that insufferable friend of yours from another city, who endlessly bemoans the better food and culture offered there? Was it that the people were strange to him, and he was not adapting well? Was it not, for all its laudable dependability, where merchant ships were concerned, a particularly nice place to be? Was he simply ill-suited to travel, and besides that, still suffering from grief? It was during one particularly dark night when the vision of better things appeared to him. It came in the form of Shahrukh, the man who had sent him there. Afflict yourself no longer, the timorid ruler told him, touching his face. And remembering the dream during morning prayer, Abdel Razak felt hope for the future, and indeed his circumstances were about to change. He was not about to be summoned home to Herat. He was not rescued in quite that way. He was going even further from home. Even as he investigated the possible meanings of his dream, consulting wise people in the city as to what it might portend, a messenger was arriving with the request that the Samudiri send along this timorid representative who wasted away there in Calicut. There was someone who wanted to see him. There was an emperor who wanted to see him. The emperor of Vijayanagara. It's possible that Abdal Razak may not even have known of Vijayanagara before, of the capital city for which the empire is named, or its ruler. But he appears to have been excited to be going there, all the same. He writes of how this emperor ruled over lands that would take three months to cross, over three hundred ports, the equal of Calicut, of how the ruler of Calicut was not subject to his laws, but did stand in awe of him. Abdal Razak was moving up, and if he didn't know much about his destination just yet, he seems to have been energized by the possibilities. Maybe this would live up to his expectations, and dispel a little of his general gloom about the entire endeavor. The first step was an audience of dismissal with the Samudiri, an audience about which he had nothing to say. He'd really already checked out. After that, it was back to sea, but not so far this time, just north up the Malabar coast to Mangalore. Just a few days there, and then leaving the coast and heading for the interior, almost immediately finding something truly striking. It was a temple. Square, bronze, and unequaled, with a great golden figure standing before it, eyes set with rubies, a work of wonderful delicacy and perfection. And then, having crossed the mountain range, he reached the town of Baylor, its houses like palaces, its women like those of paradise, and one of its temples indescribable, without being accused of exaggeration. It was tall enough that you could see it at a great distance. Its surrounding gardens, when you reached them, mirrors of the heavens in their polished stonework, set among the lush trees and flowers. Among them, the temple itself, in dark blue stone, covered in designs, leaving not a handbreadth bare. What can I say of that dome, he wrote? 
delicate as a copy of paradise brought to the world. The curve of its high arch, like a new moon, so tall, it rubbed up against the celestial sphere. With these temples, Abdel Razak stressed the wondrous nature of their construction and the beauty of their art. But he had, of course, not forgotten that these were not temples to his god. They were places where, quote, morning and evening, after devotional exercises, which had nothing in them to be agreeable to his god, they played on musical instruments, performed concerts, and gave feasts. Abdel Razak was two or three days in Baylor before leaving, heading north. By the end of April, he would be in the city of Vijayanagara. And that's where we'll join him next episode. We'll talk about that place, that empire, what happened while he was there, and how he may have felt about it. If you are listening to this on Patreon, expect me back here with the bonus section within the week. Either way, thank you for listening. I'll be back soon, and I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return 